Well, welcome to the next episode of the Powerless Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I talked to Rob Russo, who is the co-host and producer of the podcast, The Insurgents, along with Jordan Newell, um, hosts his live Twitch stream show, I think Monday through Friday, uh, the TRRS live show, so the Rob Russo show. Um, and uh, we talk about his sort of lesser known music career, which is really interesting, um, just how far it went and what a lot of his life was like for the first form of years of his uh, adulthood. Um, so we, we talk all about that. We talk about what got Rob to kind of switch from that, go to an everyday job and then go into social commentary, politics and everything in between. We talk about a couple of current events issues, uh, mostly involving Canada and some pretty international scandal things that, that happened over the, the, the last couple of weeks. I uh, talk about um, Rob's new music he's been putting out, which you'll hear a clip both before the episode and a full song at the end. That is absolutely fantastic music. I was not aware that he had been putting out new music over the last year or so. Um, so it, it was really cool to hear about that side of things. Of course, get into his uh, very quick answer for the um, for the dream band lineup. Uh, probably the quickest answer we've gotten on this podcast so far, but it was, it was great to talk to Rob. It was a great conversation, and I just really appreciate that he took the time out of his very busy schedule to do this with me. Um, if you like the show, if you are uh, new here, you can make sure to follow me on all the social media platforms at The Powerless Pod. Um, email me at thepowerlesspod at gmail.com. Uh, there is a Patreon now that I started for just $2.50 a month. Uh that you, you can pay to just support the show. I've had a few people come on. I haven't talked about it much because I really don't like doing the self-promo for, for monetary stuff there. But uh, check that out if you like the episodes. We've had a lot of great ones lately from Shane Tolis uh, of Silverstein, John, um, Andrew Herman from Johnny Booth, uh, Dan Hodson from the Cowboys Dowboys. Um, on the political side, I've talked to Mac, uh, who is the political commentator, good politic guy, my uh, good friend and uh, great journalist, uh, Shabir Rizvi. Like I said earlier, Jordan Newell. Um, and uh, last week, Alec Hawkins, the editor of some of the episodes, and I uh, started discussing some kind of current music and world news topics. So uh, a lot to cover there. Um, a lot of good back catalog of episodes. It's we're coming up to the one-year anniversary and just over a month here of this show. So make sure to check all that out. Again, if you want to support the show, you can look at the link uh, for the Patreon link. Um, and like I said, there's going to be a song playing here from Rob Russo's newest project uh, right before we get into the episode. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Rob Russo from the Insurgents, also the TRRS live show from Twitch. Um, how how are you doing today, man? I'm doing very well, Brandon. Thanks for having me. We finally yeah. found the time to do this. We did it. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, Good. I'm 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 ecstatic that you were able to come on. I had Jordan on actually a couple months ago uh, for this podcast as well. Um, I, uh, I I'm a big big fan of both your guys' work with the Insurgents. Uh, I think it's like probably the best and most uh, most enjoyable. You know, it's it's a good uh, combination of both like entertainment factor and actually good politics, which usually people 
kind of fit into one or the other <laughs> yeah, when it yeah. comes to political commentary. So um, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, been Like I said, been a, been a big fan of your work. I was actually listening to uh, the episode you guys put out today uh, with uh, John from Eve 6 yeah. with Live Nation, which kind of goes into this whole podcast where we talk about music and politics and how they can kind of intersect. And so that was like a perfect example of that right there, I guess. Um, so what I, what I want to talk to you about today is uh, I know you've mentioned it numerous times throughout your you know, various political commentary endeavors and things like that um, of your music career that you had with your band, uh, the mission district, which, uh, yeah. uh, which is it, the more I did a deep dive on it, which is, it's kind of hard to find some things at the same time. I can find like a guardian article on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I found it very interesting. Um, I was also kind of, when I first got into your podcast, kind of blown away to find out that you had been signed to like a pretty, big yeah. label and yeah and we were kind of like right whole... at the step below becoming like genuinely big but like we were all, all we came just about as close as you can come to making it in the music business without it actually happening so <laughs> yes yes <and laughs> I, I can empathize with that as well so um so i thought we would talk about that your venture there um yeah, sure. and then your kind of trajectory into politics if music ever spoke to you a bit in the political social view sphere of like what what influenced you um and then if we have time getting into a few uh current events things here if if we have the time as as we record this so to, yeah sure to start off i guess um for people that don't know that would watch this that maybe know you from the insurgents or your twitch streaming channel um talk about i guess where music started for you as a kid uh, what got you to start writing music and where this band or others maybe you were in before it um where uh where that all came from for you yeah sure i mean um i grew up in a pretty pretty small town called brockville ontario and i was kind of a somewhat sheltered sort of suburban kid i was always into music like uh i had different phases of stuff that i was into i've always been a big fan of like classic rock and that kind of stuff but um when i was probably 15 yeah, I would say I was about 15 and for whatever reason, Brockville, Ontario had this had this for a little while this really thriving like independent music scene and like hardcore music scene. And I had never really been exposed to that kind of music before, like really kind of heavy and totally out of the mainstream and and I had never and really countercultural. I had never really been exposed to anything like that before. And there were there used to uh, there were a couple of people in Brockville that would run these shows, these hardcore shows out of the basement of Trinity church in Brockville, Ontario. And I think I just, I went one time with my friends that were kind of part of that scene when I was about 15 and I just walked into this church, into this like really crazy environment with these bands, both local bands and bands that would come and, and visit there. And it was really just like, I had never experienced anything like that before uh, in my life. And I didn't even know that this existed. It was like it was like he's peering in behind the veil and seeing this whole other universe that exists that right. you're not really aware of. And I was just so blown away. And I really thought like I wanted I want to be I want to be on the stage. I want to be doing that, you know. Um, so I mean that was uh, that was how I started playing in bands and uh, and doing that and playing in like hardcore bands in in Brockville and playing at those kind of shows and jamming in my friends' garages and, and different places like that. I mean, it was just became a big part of my sort of lifestyle. 
uh, and the stuff that I was into. And I just, I carried that through. Like when I graduated high school and got into college, I mean, I just had from about the time I was, I guess I was probably, you know, shortly after that from like 17, 18, I was like, that's what I want to do. Like for my life, for my job, I want to be in a, a band. I want to tour and, and do that stuff. And, you know, for, from about, for about 10 years between 18 and probably 28, that's really what I tried to do. And I moved to Montreal to go to uh university. I ended up through a weird series of events, joining a pop punk band at the time called full count in like, this is probably around 2003, but 20 years ago, which is weird to think about. <laughs> weird to say, right? Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah. yeah. Now that I'm, <laughs> now that it's coming out of my mouth. And uh, so I, I, I joined that band who already had a bit of a following. And I think eventually, eventually we wanted to move beyond doing that kind of music. And this was like Montreal in the early two thousands. There was a big wave of like indie rock music. They became a really kind of a central hub for that kind of music with bands like arcade fire and the stills and Wolf parade. And there's just this, this really thriving sort of indie scene. It was becoming kind of the, maybe along with, with New York was kind of becoming the epicenter of one of these, of this kind of movement of uh, indie bands, indie rock. So we, I think we kind of wanted to do that. And so we, we, we started the mission district uh, in, in with that kind of a, in that kind of a context and that kind of an environment. And we just spent a couple of years, uh, you know, writing and recording stuff, recording, releasing EPs, playing shows like, in Canada, I mean, it's, you're, you're limited to kind of what you can do. So just, it was a lot of like going back and forth between Montreal and Toronto. We'd go to Toronto and play shows there and do stuff here. We'd get on showcases and stuff, trying to make a name for ourselves and trying to open up for bigger bands and stuff like that. And, uh, we, that we had had a moderate amount of success there. We ended up getting a manager and, um, uh, I don't, I'm losing track of the years when this stuff was taking place now because of how uh, how uh, long I, uh, ago it was. I, I know that your your album came out in 2008. You had an EP, the self titled EP, come out in 2006. Yeah, and had a couple of singles come out in 2009. That was what I was able to find on the internet, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess it was probably 2008. <laughs> we uh, yeah we had we had recorded some stuff around 2008. We we. Went to Toronto. We played uh, a show at M there was MTV Canada at that time was doing like a like stuff in Toronto. So we played live on MTV in Toronto, and then we drove from Toronto to Austin, Texas, um, to play For, at uh, South, South by Southwest. By Southwest. That's right. right. Yeah. South by Southwest. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. And we played a show there because we had been featured on Perez Hilton. That was kind of how we got our big break, <laughs> yeah. actually. We got featured on Perez Hilton and we ended, so we drove to, we got a spot on South by Southwest at like this Perez Hilton, like showcase thing. Cause people, he became kind of a joke of a figure, but he had, this is a time where he had quite a lot of clout and a oh, yeah. ability to raise, especially for musicians and stuff to raise their profile from nothing to becoming, to having a lot of sort of viral success. You know, this Absolutely. is in the era before, you know, TikTok or or anything like that. Right. So we, we went to play the showcase. Nothing really came of this showcase, but we are through just like schmoozing and hanging out in Austin. We ended up getting a record deal a few months later with uh, this 
it was like a half indie label in the UK called Relentless Records. They had like Cage the Elephant and Katie Tunstall and a couple of other acts. It was like half independent and half connected to uh, Virgin Records. And so that, yeah, that kind of started us off, like getting to like really uh, getting to a point where we were getting to where we sort of wanted to be. We had a deal with EMI in Canada and with Relentless Records in the UK. And yeah, for basically 2009, we spent pretty much that whole year just going back and forth between the UK and Canada and touring with different people. We toured with Simple Plan in the UK. We uh, we came back to Canada. We did some shows here. We did like a headlining tour in the UK, all these like random UK towns. We 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 had this old decommissioned Royal Mail van that we drove around the UK, yeah. <laughs> basically sleeping in while our while yeah. our singer got the cushy motel rooms. We were sleeping in the van, shivering in the in the parking what lot. What a cliche right there. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um so yeah, I mean that was how we spent that year and we were kind of really starting to do some stuff. Uh we were recording some songs with Andy Green in the UK who had he the main thing that he's known for is he produced those Keen albums, those first two Keen albums which were quite big at the time. Mm-hmm. And a, he produced a number of other things in the UK but nothing quite as big as those Keen albums. And so we were recording stuff with him. Um, really kind of felt like on the verge of breaking through. Uh, it was a really right. exciting time. And we came back to Canada. We played, this was like New Year's 2009, 2010. We played in Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto at the New Year's show for like 30,000 people or something like that. And right. it was really starting yeah. to feel like, okay, this is really happening now. Like we're actually doing this. Like it was really starting to have that feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. And immediately afterwards, it just all started to go downhill. Um, Relentless oh, Records got, got they merged fully with Virgin. So all of a sudden, the people that we were working with, we were, had a whole new kind of team that was there that were not familiar with what we were doing and we're not, we had no kind of connection to. Um, and then I think eventually just like sort of the accounting department was just like, oh, just we got to cut those guys uh, for whatever tax purposes at right. the end of the year kind of thing. And yeah. that was the end of that. Um and I guess at that point there was there was still a possibility of keep keeping going and doing stuff. We still had a record deal in Canada, and there was still a possibility of continuing and trying to do stuff. But I think by that point, I was getting to my late twenties. I was getting to be a little bit disillusioned with what we were doing and the music business in general, and starting to not really enjoy it anymore. Um, yeah, I bet. Yeah, and it was it was a tough time. Um, so I eventually was just kind of like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and I, I left, Yeah, I left and I kind of tried to go to tr- convert to more of a normie lifestyle. I got a job at like an ad agency and, um, tried to just tried to go, go straight basically. and didn't really think about music for, for quite a few years after that. But, uh, that's kind of, that's how I spent basically my whole twenties. I guess it was, I was about 27, 28 when this, uh, when this kind of ended, you know, it was a really crazy time in my life, a crazy experience, but yeah, I mean, to say the least, yeah, to, yeah, to, to play in front of 30,000 people or so in, um, in Toronto for new year's is, you know, I, I equate that for, for an American like myself of like playing when the ball drops. Like, yeah. In, like, yeah. It was new like York the Canadian almost, version right? of like, that. Yeah. The slightly yeah. more lame like, version, but still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but and and then to kind of have it all fall like I I would feel I mean I could totally see where that would both be like such an 
a unique part of your life that a lot of people don't get to experience. And yet, like in the moment when that stuff all starts to fall apart to really just like become so cynical of like even wanting to create yeah. music, right? Yeah. It could really pull you out of that, right? Yeah. And it really did. I, I lost a lot of confidence. Um, and I really didn't think about it for a year, for a couple of years afterwards. But it, the interesting thing is that there's a connection with what I'm currently doing is because, you know, I've always been interested in like politics and the news and stuff like that. And, you know, around this time, it was like 2010 and Twitter had really kind of started to take off at that point. And I started to mm. really just, I had a lot of time to just like sit around in my room. It was a cold Montreal winter and I was just like, I had no, I had a little bit of savings and no real touring to do after like a whole year of always being on the move and always doing stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just like anti-socially locked myself in my room and became fixated on Twitter and like talking about the news and talking about politics on Twitter uh, to anyone who would listen. And um, for a long time, that was really nobody. And I think I just, I spent a couple of years at then just kind of like doing that, just, just, you know, getting involved in these conversations on Twitter and, trying to get people to notice me and pay attention to what I had to say. And for a long time, no one really did. And then just through a series of weird events that I still don't totally understand, I managed to start sort of reaching a really big audience on there. And then you know, was, that kind of led to me say, to what I'm doing now. I think the last time I checked, I'm not, I don't like go and check people's like numbers on Twitter necessarily, or, you know, as you say, like X the everything app. Right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's Twitter, right? But, but uh, um, I yeah, you're close to like a hundred thousand followers on there. Like that's no small feat by any by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah. uh, I guess that just comes from a yeah a long standing period of time of paying attention to politics, saying your opinions, and eventually people kind of catch on to it, right? Like yeah, I mean that um, was part of it. Um, I started became you know in the in the, around the time that the Trump era came in i was already very radicalized by the obama era because i i had that sense mm -hmm. of hope and optimism like many people around the world did people in the u.s and canada and around the world were so inspired by that obama campaign and i think paying really close attention to what that actually looked like in practice particularly when it comes to like a foreign policy standpoint and like the yeah. obama's like warrantless drone assassination programs and Libya and all these really horrible things that were going on under Obama, like after this, after he ran as kind of this anti-war candidate and tried to position himself as being this like progressive person that was going to really change the way things happen. You realize how much people got, got kind of like hypnotized by that and didn't ignore like what he was actually about or did ignore, yeah. excuse me. And that was very radicalizing, but then Trump comes in after and it's even more. And I think, you know, I was angry. I was really just angry and upset at the way that the world was going. My son had just been born at that time. And it's kind of like a scary thing when you mm -hmm. realize that like oh, yeah. our, our sort of like society is maybe not quite as on firm ground as maybe we'd like to imagine. And is maybe on the decline in a lot faster than we're really realizing. And um, so I started to become really obsessed with sort of like trying to make these conservatives and reactionaries really mad and, <laughs> making stuff up to to say to like make these people as mad as possible and try to get featured on like conservative media and stuff that became kind of a fixation as well. So that was a big part of uh, building the platform. And also I just um, in the similarly to how I was uh, disillusioned with Obama around that time, um, 
2011 or 2012, I really started gravitating to Bernie Sanders. And I thought that's someone that's not not quite as cynical and not using this progressive language because he thinks it's going to be popular, but he says these things even when they're very unpopular. And he has this very kind of funny way about him and is this his kind of no-nonsense yeah. kind of Brooklyn Jewish guy attitude that he has. It's very confusing. I found him a very compelling character. And so it was also really exciting then in like 2015, 2016, seeing him turn into this big oh, yeah. national figure, you know, it was really exciting. And yeah, I think when it came time to when 2020 rolled around and his, his second campaign, I guess I, I realized that with the way everything had shaken out that I kind of had a, an opportunity to be like one of the, one of the main like online Bernie bro guys. And I just kind of like <laughs> leaned into that. I leaned into that because yeah. I just thought it was going to be something that would maybe be, maybe could contribute to something good eventually happening in the United States of America for once, you know, I thought maybe yeah, like, something, but, yeah, yeah. and then again, yeah. you see, we all know how that went and that would, that in and of uh -huh. itself was radicalizing as well. And then we have everything mm. since that time, the pandemic and, the Biden era and everything that's happened since then, which is, it's all been, uh, it's all been very instructive and has all kind of contributed to uh, where I've, where I've ended up. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I was a similar uh, trajectory myself, you know, I, uh, I remember being, you know, I was, I was in high school when, when I'm a few years younger than you, I was in high <laughs> school when Obama first, uh, <laughs> yeah. when, when, when Obama first was running and, and, uh, got elected and I, I grew up in a very conservative household, but there was just something about the guy that they grabbed me, you know, and, and, uh, something about the way he was speaking, something about the, the things he was saying, the fact that it wasn't a household name, all this kinds of stuff. And then, you know, I, I got into college and, really saw policy or for, for myself, I'm a special education uh, teacher. Oh, cool. And so, so when, when I, when I, uh, and I'm not here to talk about myself too much here, we'll get more, but, but I just mean like, I very much identify I with, hear with what you're saying that, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, life just can kind of radicalize you in yeah. a way when you're paying attention to those things, you're not just watching mainstream media or something. You're out, you're on social media. You're saying kind of the reality of the situation you know, I was actually uh, working working on stuff for a music project uh, just the other day, where I, I write lyrics like for politically charged things, and I referenced, you know, the uh, the, you know, I think it was Daniel Hale that brought up during the Obama administration about the ninety percent of, you know, the 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 deaths from from the drone strikes during Obama, ninety percent of them were civilians, right, yeah. and, and all these kinds of things. I remember learning about that and just like. For the longest time, you know, both in school, you know, I'm a public education teacher, um, and so I know this firsthand as well. Like both in school, from from mainstream news outlets, from everything else, that that like you're really taught this like dichotomy of it's this group or that group when it comes to Democrats or Republicans. Or I know to a lesser extent in Canada, it's not quite a two party system, but there's very much like two sides of of, of yeah. the coin there. And it is um, we have multi parties, but we've only ever elected to two of the parties: yes, the Liberal Party right, and the Conservative right. Party. So I just I view Canada. You look you look at the multi party system in Canada, and if you imagine like. The squad had their own party that caucused with the Democrats rather than just being part of the Democratic Party. I mean, that's basically what it's got. Or maybe if you had that's, like that's the, Texas that that's had the, the Texas NDP, party, NDP, that was, right? Is yeah, that, yeah, is exactly. That what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you had like the um, Texas I, I, party that was just advocating for uh, for yeah. Texas <laughs> pro Texas policies, you know, things like that. Yeah, that that's what happens a little bit with uh with the um 
the province you're you're in, right? There's a lot yeah. of uh, there's a lot of that kind of interesting uh, social construct there too. But yeah, the, the point being that I, I I think for a lot a lot of people at that time, just life radicalized you in a way, right? Um, but uh, in between, obviously, you know, you kind of getting disillusioned from music, and I'd actually want to talk about that if it comes in the conversation a little more. You referenced today in your episode you put out with the insurgents about like the three sixty deals you guys had to do and how like probably the business side of things really down downtrodden you guys uh, along with some other things, I'm sure, but like the, the whole business practice of labels and all that can really d- disillusion you from, yeah. from the creative aspect of being an artist. But um, when you got into, you, you said politics were always interesting for you. News was always interesting for you. Um, were there, you know, were there, uh, I know, I know it like uh, you're, you're, I, I identify with a lot of the same views you have on a lot of things from what I've seen you talk about. Were there certain like literary things you read? Were there certain public figures that you learned about? Were there, um, was it just kind of life experience? What kind of brought you to this other than what we just referenced with Obama and Trump and all that kind of stuff, the more mainstream things, what are the things that kind of helped radicalize you and inform you to politics outside of sort of the mainstream electoral, uh, uh, you know, bipartisan, views that a lot of people have when it comes to when it comes to politics or or where did that kind of come from for you i don't know it's like i've i've weirdly always had a a sort of i felt this connection with like with socialism and i've always been really fascinated in like socialist like iconography like when i went to europe when i was 19 you know i spent some time in hungary and i i I went out to see Statue Park in Hungary where they took all the all the statue all the communist statues after the revolution and you can go and check them out. And I've always been very fascinated with that despite not having, you know, we live in a really anti-communist society where we we don't really learn about what that is and we're told certain things about socialism and these these the USSR or what have you. Um but I've always felt this sort of like it being drawn to it like uh for whatever reason. Um so, I mean, that was one thing that I, when I, be, the more I became disillusioned with like electoral politics and like Obama and Bernie and electoral politics here in Canada too, with the, with the, you know, the, our kind of fake liberal democracy that we have here as well, the more I started being interested in socialism and actually wanted to learn about, you know, socialist theory and, and started to read a little bit more about these figures. Um, I guess if you could point to something that, um, you know, that brought me along that path. I think one of my favorite books of all time is uh, for whom the bell tolls by uh, Hemingway, which is about the Spanish civil war. And, uh, and this, the main character who lives in the, in the mountains uh, fighting with this guerrilla army uh, against the fascism in, in uh, Franco Spain. So Mm -hmm. I think that was, that was part of it because I really, that connected to that so well. And then learning a little bit about the Spanish civil war and, you know, who is going over there to fight against fascism. You know, it's, there's a really interesting connection with that. And Canada, right. uh, there was Canadians in the, uh, what was called the Mackenzie Papineau battalion that volunteered to go fight for the Republican forces in the Spanish civil war. Um, which is one of the cooler things that, that Canadians, uh, have ever done. And our, of course our government afterwards <laughs> said like, Hey, no, you're not allowed to do that anymore. No one's yeah, allowed not, to go there. None no. of that anymore. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah we don't yeah. like that. <laughs> Um, and learning about people like Norman Bethune, who was not only participating, it was a doctor who was not only participating in the Spanish Civil War, but, um, you know, there's a big Norman Bethune statue in Montreal, like right near where I went to school at Concordia University. So 
he went to the uh, he was a, a surgeon who was part of the Spanish Civil War. He eventually went to China to uh, to uh, help with the Chinese Revolution. He was a surgeon in the uh, in Mao's army, basically in the Chinese Revolution. Right. He died. He, he died. Um, he was doing surgery and cut his finger and got got infected and he got blood poisoning and died. So in, uh, in the Chinese Revolution and. There's big to this day. There's big monuments to Norman Bethune in in China, and Mao actually wrote a really touching eulogy for him, uh, which I return to often, um, probably once a year. Like when I think about Bethune, because Mao, you know, you think about Mao as this big iconoclastic figure, and it's so touching. He's talking about like Comrade Bethune sent me many letters, and I was too busy. I didn't get around to reading them, and now I wish I had. And he has the sense of regret. It's yeah, really, it's really right, beautiful. Right. <laughs> You got to say your homies, you love them, like while they're still around. You know, that's that's Mao is telling yeah, us about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that those are the kind of things that made me interested in in socialism and made me start to want to ask myself, like, you know, whether whether the what we're told about socialism, whether what we're told about the USSR or China or whatever, is really accurate, or whether there's something more going on. I think these are all things that contributed to me wanting to learn more about that and wanted to sort of deprogram myself from what we're taught to believe about about these kind of figures and what socialism is and what uh, what's all the, what's this all supposed to represent yeah ab- absolutely i mean that that makes a lot of sense it's cool that you know as as an american i know it's so surprising i have not learned about some of those figures you were just talking <laughs> about like yeah. much at all let alone any of the other like more socialist figures from the united states we don't learn much at all yeah about, they don't want you to know um, about that in stuff. school yeah right right um but uh it is interesting to hear about that kind of especially in relation to some current events coming from canada that you've already talked about on your own podcast um with uh you know, with things with like what went on in Parliament, just like a, a couple. I think it was two weeks ago. Now times yeah. a blur, but um, it, it brought to light to me a little bit, um, especially from some of what you talked about with you know, in relation to the connection of Ukraine and Canada. And I know I'm just kind of going out of tangent here from what I was initially going to talk about, but but uh, how you had talked about on your podcast um, uh, a couple episodes back, I think that you know there was this big like kind of Ukrainian socialist. Uh, Canadian yeah. um, cohort in Canada for a long time, and then it kind of shifted gears to things that you you know it kind of encapsulates it perfectly. A couple of weeks ago, where you saw somebody yeah, from that is less politically, you know, this podcast has a lot of people that listen to, primarily to music, so maybe they didn't follow this as much. But it was a na- it was an international scandal um, of 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 salute. I mean, basically like propping up, applauding, doing a standing ovation for a straight up SS, you know, Nazi soldier yeah. um, from Ukraine. Uh, and then, you know, you go to like somebody like me that doesn't know as much about the ins and outs of things that go on in Canada, the, the social dynamics, the everything in between. I always think of like horrific statues being up, being an American thing when it comes to Confederates and stuff like that. But then I was actually reading and I, I just uh, was bringing this up because I thought I, I figured you knew this and I just thought it'd be interesting to bring up was was about that so, some of the different figures and some of the different people from like a similar division all the and all that kind of stuff that they actually have statues for yeah in a few different places in Canada right like yeah we it's, have actual it's monuments very interesting. to this Waffen SS division in a couple of different yeah, places it's, it, it's very interesting to both uh, from all sides of it to hear both the response from the Canadian Parliament where 
um, again, I'm I'm probably going to butcher the 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 terms, but the essential like speaker of the parliament that that yeah. did this um, was acting like this was a whoopsie, you know, yeah, um, all these all these different things, to like the people guy. acting like. Um, and then I, and I actually screenshotted this to put in my notes today when I was at, I, I was at work on, on a break real quick of you responding to, uh, uh, I, I, I only know his name and printed, so I'm probably pronouncing his last name improperly, but John Cypher, uh, who is the yeah. former CIA, like <laughs> yeah. crazy person that always has like the worst takes of all time on Twitter somehow gets dunked on nonstop, but like shared that Politico um, opinion article that's like, actually, if you fought against the USSR in World War II, you might not have been a Nazi. And like all these weird things that are going on. Yeah. Like if you volunteer for the just... SS, it does kind of make you a Nazi, though, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like they're, they're, they're really <laughs> conflating this whole idea of like, you know, um, <laughs> they're trying to throw nuance into something that is like for once in politics principally unnuanced right so i guess like what do you make from that in you know for 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 canada as 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 an american a lot of the people that might listen to this that um might not know as much like where where did that you know you you talk you you reference like uh you reference like this ukrainian socialist front you know in years back historically how does that translate from that to propping up ukrainian nazis and kind of conf- conflating like this entire issue like where, where does yeah. that come from overall well i mean you talk about histories that you don't are not taught about uh, when you grow up right i mean and i think world war ii and the nazis has become a really important part of western propaganda both in canada and the united states and we we're just told the Nazis were bad and we fought the Nazis and we won. And so we're against the Nazis and that's the end of the story. That's kind of, and you see the movies, you see the John Wayne movies, you see saving private <laughs> yeah, Ryan yeah. or whatever it is. And you're like, uh-huh. yeah, we, of course we're against, we don't like Nazis and we're against them. But the whole thing about what actually happened to the Nazis after the war, that kind of gets really downplayed a lot. Um, and were they actually defeated or did they get absorbed? And I think that's where it uh, opens up some really interesting questions that, when you start digging at these uh, threads or he's tugging at these threads uh, reveals some pretty startling stuff that we're not really ever told about. And as far as Canada's role, um, number one, I mean, we talk about our ruling class. We're totally okay with Nazism, totally okay with Adolf Hitler right up until the point where it became like really literally impossible to really defend that. Um, like the uh, Canadian prime minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King met Hitler in 37, I think, and wrote in his journal, like, this guy's great. You know, I absolutely love this guy. He's, he wants to kill Russians. He wants to kill Soviets and, and communists. And, you know, they're persecuting Jews who we all are vile anti-Semites as well. No problem there. And, you know, they, they really, that's how they viewed Hitler. Like they were, uh, it was really good for business for the elite class, the capitalist class. Um, and he was fighting, so he was he was killing communists and and persecuting them. So no real problem there. And it only really became a problem like as World War II progressed and the absolute horrors of the of the Nazi regime started to really escalate. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a whole American component to this. But if you want if you want to talk about Canada, uh, yeah, that's what I was I was talking about a few weeks ago, which is that. Um, you know, there were these, I think something like 7 million Ukrainians joined the Red Army during World War II to fight fascism very bravely and correctly. And in fact, helped save all of our asses from this, this fascist menace. Yes. 
Um, 100%. But a small number of Ukrainians um, joined these like partisan groups, such as the the UPA, I believe is the acronym, which was like the the insurgent army who carried out really brutal, vile uh, acts of, of mass murder against uh, Jews and Polish people, almost to the point that it was like too much for the Nazis. The Nazis were like, okay, like we got to tone it down here, actually, because this is like getting out of hand. Um, and then you had other people Jesus. like this guy, Hunka, who joined the actual, the actual like SS, who, who swore allegiance mm-hmm. to Hitler to join the SS. And like you're hinting at, there's been this whole process of revisionism that's going on or this kind of like, well, we got to be nuanced about that or suggesting that like it's some, it was some impossible position that they just were forced to join the SS because they were under this kind of Soviet occupation. Um, but I mean, these people were not fighting Soviets. They were carrying out war crimes and massacres against uh, civilians predominantly. And they were doing so at the behest of the Nazis. So really not something that there's any nuance over or any like, Oh, you, you, you kind of have to understand it's complicated. It's not complicated. It's totally black and white. They were Nazis. Yeah. So, and yeah, then after, sometimes some, yeah. yeah so go, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Sometimes I was just going to say, sometimes like, I know like the, the online political brain is to like, you know, talk about opinions that even aren't worth mentioning a lot just for the sake of, hearing yourself speak or like in written form, see your words out there for people to comment on. But it's like at some point, like how do people like, I I, I like what, what, what you and you and Jordan will reference on your podcast a lot that it's like, how many times have I heard you guys say, or other political analysts I'll listen to say like, you know, 10 years ago, at least somebody wouldn't have said this out loud, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. somebody wouldn't have been like, hey, let's make discourse about whether or not like a a Nazi is a Nazi, right? Like it just kind of would have been something people would have thought is absurd. I'm not saying there weren't problems already there, but at least they they, they wouldn't come out with them in full bravado. Yeah. And I think we're all in agreement that, that you know, there was no real nuance there to be had. No, yeah. I think it's it's something yeah. that I talk about a lot and I think about a lot that's been really alarming. I think over the last couple of years, this process of uh, historical revisionism and this kind of Nazi apologia, there's kind of a, a red scare that's been in, a new red scare that's been increasing in intensity really since uh, since uh, 2016, 2017. And it's really started to kind of exponentially get a lot worse. And along with this red scare, you're getting this kind of revisionism and you're getting this kind of Nazi apologia. And it's the alarming thing for me is like, even in the early Trump era, when there was a lot, there was these, like there's the Charlottesville rally and all these kind of like new right, like or alt right, uh, you know, fascist sympathizers, or you can be generously call them. And, a lot of people on the sort of more liberal or progressive or social Democrat or socialist side seem to all be united in agreement. These people are Nazis. Like they're not good. We shouldn't be, we need to kind of defeat these people. Like they're, they're what they're advocating for is really ugly. And now I think the really disturbing thing is that there's a lot of people that would, would totally in agreement on that. Uh, a couple years ago, now they're sitting here going like, well, you know, just because someone joined the SS, I mean, it's not really, and they don't necessarily make them a Nazi. And it's kind of like, well, what's, what's going on here? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, what the fuck are we talking it's not, about? That's, yeah. This is not good. Um, <laughs> and so to go, it's like to go back to Canada and this connection with Ukraine, I think that's what happened after the war is that we imported, you know, the number, the actual number is not known because this has been obscured so much and covered up so much, but you know, 
some people estimate up like in the thousands of these former SS Ukrainian nationalists. And we brought them into Canada knowing full well who they were. And that's it. Like you mentioned, we had at that time a Ukrainian diaspora here in Canada that was very like socialist leaning. And there was this was part of an effort to kind of really disrupt that and to bring these fascists into these communities. And it destroyed these this kind of burgeoning sense of sort of uh, the socialist front like you're talking about. They got hired by uh, private, you know, capital to act as like muscle for union busting uh, efforts. They were spying on left wing activists and doing all kinds of stuff. And so we, we created basically uh, through this process, this really reactionary uh, fascist sympathizing Ukrainian diaspora. And that's exactly why we have monuments uh, in certain Ukrainian graveyards to these SS divisions because we imported so many of these uh, Waffen SS guys um, that are not ashamed. Like they're quite proud of this history, and um, they've been born. They've been pretty open about it uh, for for years. And I think it's just it's weirdly slid under the radar. Even though that's not like there was a big outcry about this in the eighties. There was a there was a, a a research paper that was that was that came out in the in the eighties that the government put together talking about this. There was like I was watching on my stream the other day, there was like a CBC feature on this from like 30 years ago talking about this problem and talking about how we have these like this uh incredibly reactionary uh Ukrainian diaspora and this this whole problem with importing these SS guys. There was a 60 minutes piece on it. Like it's not totally a secret, but we still like Right. Again, you grow up in this country where the Nazis are bad and we fought the Nazis. That's the end of the story. And but all of a sudden you start realizing this stuff and it's like, well, what, what's going on here? Like what actually, what kind of country am I living in here? And it makes you kind of question everything about what you've been told about where you grew up. You know, it's the, uh, it's, it's the cynical solidarity in me that makes me at least like appreciate that. Like I, you know, it's not just the United States that has like horrific, terrible things that we just kind of gloss over and try to, you know, move fast and, and, and like pretend like we were like, I mean, there's a whole thing with the United States where they pretend that, you know, we we won the war against the Germans. Yeah, of which course. Happen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good I reminder. Saw it in movie. That, I don't like, know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a good reminder, I think, for for a lot of people in the States that like, you know, it, it is an overall like West problem of like not really addressing the reactionary elements within our very like political structure, right? Like, yeah. Um, I think it's a good thing for people to note. And I really appreciate that you talk about that a lot. Um, in a, in a very, again, like I said, y- you don't like beat people over the head with it. You make it entertaining, but you still find a way to make sure to, t- to talk about this, um, to, to go back to like a little bit of, of some of the other, uh, and, and I, I appreciate you taking the time with me late at night tonight, but no I, problem. I, uh, uh, to, to talk about music and politics a little bit, and I know this is old news, but I wanted to bring it up in the context of music because I found your commentary on this hilarious. It was mentioned in the first Republican debate. Um, you had a long live stream that you put up on YouTube about it. That was, you know, for, for me that like I, I, I would uh, tune into your streams more often, but with work and everything else, yeah, I can just sure. see what, what usually is recorded or whatever else on YouTube with the Oliver Anthony song. Um, 
uh, what was it? Uh, 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 Richmond, north Richmond, of Richmond. North of yeah. Richmond. Yes. I. The only reason why I bring this up, I know it's kind of old news at this point, quote unquote, with how like the news cycle goes. Yeah. But I had somebody the other. I had a couple of people the other day mention to me how much they thought this song was so like from the heart and people like just singing from their gut and it's so yeah i don't know if you follow uh 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 the journalist uh abby martin that does uh empire files uh, media roots uh all that kind of stuff her and her uh her brother you know on the media roots podcast they actually went in a deep dive on it on how it looked like like from the the investigations they were able to do that he maybe didn't even write the song <laughs> and like there's all these different things with like a guy yeah, from the blaze just, yeah the like, blaze promote like, it conservative and, influencer like just kind of invented it yeah what is amazing to me about that and i just am kind of bringing this up in 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 reference to you know reactionary things people kind of uh bogarting populist views for the sake of like ripping on poor people which can kind of be in line with what we were just talking about in a sense in a lot of ways um it's funny to me that people take that song still like it's still getting plays by the way i looked it up today before before i talked about this to make sure i wasn't talking about something completely irrelevant nobody no but it's still like really high up there as far as like country songs and singles and things like that um that people acted like this is the first country song <laughs> that ever talked about these issues. Yeah. There country music like used to be about like killing your boss and stuff, you know, back yeah, in the day. That Johnny Cash yeah. didn't exist, you know, as an example or whatever else. Um, uh, I don't know. Like, did, f- for you, I, I felt, I'll, I guess I'll just say my piece on this a little bit. It's funny to me. Like, I heard this from people that listen to like, hardcore music alternative music post hardcore whatever else that like also grasped onto the song that are maybe less politically minded and they acted like it was the first politically charged song they had ever heard yeah in their entire lives did you kind of get that like especially with it being mentioned the republican debate i was kind of thrown that people acted like this was like the first time somebody had written a song about social issues it was very bizarre i don't know yeah usually they think they say that's woke and it's not good when you do that and you're like <laughs> yeah, get the politics right. out of the supposed- music just yeah shut up and sing shut whatever up and sing. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> um but uh i i i guess like i guess i'm trying to i'm trying to find a way to, to articulate this well but like what for, I, I obviously that song's like a couple of months past or whatever it's relevancy in a lot of ways but like what uh, what, I I I guess like from from in general I I I thought it I thought it brought up a, g- a good point and y- you brought it up very funnily on on your stream that when you talked about it but like of how um of how people just sort of pretend some of these issues are are talked about through the Republican Party talked about through like re reactive a reactive lens or like faux populist lens or whatever. Um, what do you think the problem is there to with 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 everything you cover, where uh, Democrats or in your case in in Canada the Liberal Party everything else that they're missing the mark on like how to talk to regular people because I think it's very astounding to me that both in the past couple past couple of Republican debates especially the second one which is an absolute shit show that they are able to that they talk more about 
like the everyday working people in a lot of sense than what the neoliberal, you know, Democratic Party that really doesn't seem like it knows what it's doing. Um, talking to poor working class people, everything in between. Like, how how does that? How, I, I guess, like, in, in your view, like, how, how how does that happen in conjunction with like the fact that we have a party that all they are doing is focusing on corporate tax, you know, incentives, like helping out the, the, you know, the, the biggest consolidation of power when it comes to capital, like how, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm losing track of my, my question here a little (laughs) bit, but I guess like, how, where's that missing for, for the liberals, I guess, in both Canada and the United States that like these right-wing people are able to, take these topics, talk about them and then turn on, turn them on the head to just like hate poor people. Where do you think that really comes from? Where do you think the problem is there and, and why aren't they addressing it the way they should? Well, I think the problem is that we're living in these sort of like the, the consequences we're living through the consequences of economic policies that were really implemented in the early 80s, in the dawning of the neoliberal era, which happened under Reagan and Thatcher and in Canada, you had Brian Mulroney and other figures that were part of that. And, um, you know, this is like a sort of an economic policy that was spearheaded by Republicans and conservatives. And, you know, what are the, what are the hallmarks of this kind of neoliberal era? It's like deindustrialization. They, uh, they, you know, offshored the entire manufacturing industry, destroying unions. Um, cutting taxes, like cutting taxes for the wealthiest people. And kind of this was sort of the promise of neoliberalism was like, yeah, we're going to get rid of all these high paying union jobs that you used to be able to get and support a family on and buy a home off of. Uh, those are all going away. We're shipping those jobs to China and Mexico or wh- wherever else in the developing world where we can we can have pay the, the as, le- as little as possible for uh, for labor and not have to deal with these unions like demanding like living wages and stuff. And so, you know, this has created massive amounts of inequality. And because of the success of people like Reagan and Thatcher, you've had this system now where liberals and Democrats have been trying to play catch up and they embraced all these policies like Bill Clinton or like a Barack Obama who embraced all these same policies of austerity and tax cuts and, uh, the industrialization and all these things, and maybe had like a slightly different view of certain social issues or were slightly less mean about it than Republicans were. But you have, you have a, basically a two party system that are promoting really, really similar economic policies with maybe a few subtle differences. Um, but I think over time, liberals now, because of like Clintonism and, and NAFTA and all that have kind of owned this. They've owned this economic policy, whether they were, they were not involved in like implementing it at first, but they, they went all along with all these economic policies and they kind of own it. So, you know, that was the whole, that what's, that's what led to Trump being elected is you've got Hillary, you've got a Clinton running and in these like former, these working class strongholds that used to be like former democratic party strongholds where popular union activity and these big industrial centers in America, they're like, well, fuck you. We're not voting for you. We're going to vote for this guy who we don't really like or trust, or we're just not going to vote at all. I think that's probably what a lot of people. I think that's, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. We, I think we talked a little bit too much about the Obama to Trump voter, but this is the issue. It's like, like Obama was able to kind of, 
put together these big coalitions because he was incredibly charismatic. He's a great political communicator. And he had he run these historic campaigns. The second one was a lot less successful than the first because people had become aware at that time that it was most mostly bullshit. But you know, I think that's big, a big problem is that liberals kind of own that process, and it's created this weird situation where then you have right wing populists like Trump who benefited from this whole process. Like it's it's a farcical that conservatives can pretend to to be a, yeah, opposed to the this brain a little bit it does yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but yeah. then you have these people going to these communities that have been devastated by this process um that have you know that have unions have been destroyed and all the the factories have closed and no one can afford a home no one, everyone's in debt people are in having addiction cri- there's a big addiction crisis no you know and it's that's the result of these neoliberal economic policies which have just increased the um inequality and led to you know millionaires and billionaires having doing better than anyone that has ever done in human history while everyone else is just getting less and less and less so i think it's created these these that's the kind of situation that someone like oliver anthony is coming out of and you know however honest or however sincerely held his views are whatever the role that these conservative influencers played in promoting that I think it's given people this really distorted idea about who are the who are the who is screwing them exactly, and there's been also alongside all of this, all of these big economic consequences. There's been this like real uh, right wing propaganda push that blames government for everything, and convincing people that the government is the reason that all of this stuff has happened. And of course, the government played a role, but ultimately, these are these are ideas that are promoting even more of the exact same economic policies of tax cuts and austerity, um, which led to the crisis in the first place. But because of, because of this, because it's, it seems to be only really right-wing people that are willing to go and make these arguments. And we're seeing the same thing in Canada with Pierre Polyev right now doing the same thing. Oh God. Yeah. Talking about (laughs) all these issues and talking about the real, the way people are struggling and not being able to buy groceries and not being able to get a home and all this. And people that, you know, people respond to that. Oh, I'm being spoken. My needs are being spoken to. But ultimately, this is kind of a, a sleight of hand where you're acknowledging these issues. You're acknowledging these crises. But on the other hand, you're just promoting a vision for government where let's give your boss a tax cut. Let's make it so even fewer people have food stamps and fewer people, and you can get less and less with that. And that's the problem. That's, that's the, the reason you're struggling. Yeah. That's why you don't have a job. That's yeah. why you can't get a home. It's because too many people are on welfare. Too many people are on our welfare queens getting fudge rounds with their food stamps and people are just being taxed. They're being taxed so much like the poor, but like, that's the kind of sleight of hand was like the person that's getting taxed too much is not necessarily the struggling working class person, but their boss and the people that, were involved in this whole deindustrialization process in the first place. So that's the really kind of grotesque thing that's going on is that you have right-wing people that are uh, capitalizing on all these crises and speaking to these people. And then at the same time, advocating for the exact same economic policies that caused the problems in the first place. And that's, that's where we're at. And that's, that's what allows someone like Oliver Anthony to become a big, uh, a big star singing this kind of song that has this very kind of, kind of faux populist right wing economic message. I, I, I gotta admit real quick and, and then I'll 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 get to a few of those things and we'll we'll wrap up soon. I appreciate your time. But I uh I 
I admit, like somebody shared on Twitter, there was like a communist account that shared like a short of that song, and it was the first verse and I think the chorus. Yeah, yeah. You know, You're like oh, this is great. And I was yeah, like, this is cool. I, yeah. They shared like they're like they're like bring this kind of country music back, and I watched it, and I was like, hell yeah, like this is awesome. Like we yeah. need to see this back. And then I it went lulls to, you to Spotify. To sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I put I went I was like cleaning my house and I put I put it on Spotify, was listening, and it was before like the whole thing came out and people were really like taking sides on it or whatever. And then like the second verse came on and I heard it while I was like cleaning my bed, like probably cleaning a toilet or something. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second, what yeah, what was wait, that? Wait, what did that say? You know, and like looked at it and it was like, Oh, this is one of those. If you're you know, five and, foot three and, uh, and you're three hundred pounds, taxes pounds. ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. <laughs> One of the Fudge worst rounds. lyrics yeah. that I think I've ever heard in any song. Also, is really, yeah, politics aside, yeah, just really bad. dumb yeah, lyrics. Just like, really bad just lyrics. Bad. That's, yeah. that's like a that's like the worst, yeah, worst lyric I've ever heard. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, but it, it to your point, it really does speak to you. And this is something I've like tried to reconcile with a lot because I don't like to be one of those people that like as we see, especially through political commentary, where they they kind of go left with no quote unquote left with no morals and they end up only attacking the democratic party or the liberal party not really acknowledging how crazy the fascist side of the right wing reactionary things can be but you know that that you start really seeing say the liberal party in canada or the democratic party in the united states for a lot of things at least nationally as like spoilers to a lot of activist movements on the ground leftist movements you know, solidarity with workers, all those kinds of things. And it leaves a space open for, you said, you know, Trump or Josh Hawley or all these other people that know how to say the game. But at the end, you say, like you said, the the, the populism ends with like giving a tax cut to your boss yeah, and telling yeah, you to exactly. shut the fuck yeah. up and go to work. <laughs> yeah. um, it just feels so dystopian and everything else. But it's, it, it, it's good to reconcile with the fact that both like both of those things can be true, that you should point out the right wing freaks and also realize that like, you know, your mainstream quote unquote liberal party in either country is not looking out for your benefit. And you have to either push those people or go for a third party or single issue movements or, you know, on the ground uh, yeah. protesting, whatever else to really like focus your politics on things that actually matter. So that's, that's what I appreciate about yours and uh, Jordan's podcast, specifically the insurgents that you guys do a good, like, I don't mean middle ground as in middle ground politically, yeah. but I mean middle ground on both talking about the reality of electoral politics that you should do, what you do there, like, whatever it is. If you vote for somebody, that's fine for harm reduction in, in certain instances, but also the fact that, like, these people are not there to save you, and there's a lot more you should be doing, whether it's focusing on things like Jordan's done with, with like, the Move On campaign, with, with various things they've talked about over the years, or what you both talk about. Um, just in general, single issues and all those kinds of things that it's good to open people's eyes while also not just like, like trying to go into the corner of like, who's the most left and who's going to do the most thing contrary into the yeah, democratic yeah. party or the liberal party. Cause that, that, that all becomes, that's a, that's a lane that a lot of people go into that I think is, I don't even know if it's destructive. It's just not useful for anybody. You know, yeah, well, it's so useful really for them getting about... cloud and, and YouTube subscriptions and that yeah. kind of stuff. It's, that's very useful yeah, for that. Yeah. This is real yeah. activism. Uh, that... And you subscribe to my YouTube yeah. channel and super chat me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or seeing them interview like the, the you know, the, the say the Green Party candidate, Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, who's like absolutely 
fantastic yeah, on all fronts. He's the man. And still finding a way to like circumvent and like shit on them in a yeah, way. Yeah, why are you, like, why are you, you standing? You're you know? asking Cornell West why he stands up for like social justice. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Jesus Christ. <laughs> are you stupid? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's so ridiculous. Uh, two last questions. I don't, I don't mean to take too much more of your time. Um, one that I meant to ask earlier, but then we started talking about all this stuff, but it, it so it's, it's, it's a little out of conjunction, but, but, uh, um, since, you know, music was big in your life. Uh, now politics news and everything else has, has been very big in your life. Has there ever been a few bands, whether it was some big, big name ones more, you know, you said you, you kind of got into the hardcore underground scene, you know, that's very politically, socially charged in a lot of instances. Was there ever music that influenced you? You know, what, whether it be the, the landmark song from Oliver Anthony or others, <laughs> um, that, that, uh, that's my bad attempt at a joke. Um, uh, uh, did anything ever influence you politically when it came to music or art in general? Um, and then I'll get to my last kind of goofy question to end things here. But, but uh, did, did any, yeah, I guess like did any music or art or anything like that ever really influence your politics? I mean, I think you could argue that it started me down a certain path. I think ultimately you can get started by a certain path. And like you pointed out, there's a lot of like really socially conscious hardcore music that exposed me to sort of different ideas about politics and society that I'd never really been exposed to before. Um, but also you can, you can realize in, in retrospect, like how that can be, that can lead you down bad paths as well. I think a band like earth crisis is a good example. It had that really big vegan and straight edge kind of like uh, socially conscious message, which sometimes is pretty valuable. But then you look at like an earth crisis song, like firestorm, which is basically about like purging drug users and like, <laughs> like yeah. killing them. Very reactionary yeah, yeah. in some so ways. I think so, yeah, that's, yeah. that can lead you down bad paths as well. I think there's bands like Rage Against the Machine, obviously, that that you know promoted certain ideas in this kind of very mainstream sort of uh, aggressive sound that was really commercially popular, but they had really overall uh, a pretty decent political message uh, in most ways. There's people like Bruce Springsteen, like uh, who have, have kind of, I mean, talking about Oliver Anthony and these kind of working class uh, message. I mean, I think Bruce Springsteen is someone that uh, has built his whole career in, in telling those kinds of stories. Like one of my favorite albums is Nebraska by Springsteen, the, the more yeah. stripped down kind of acoustic album, really about these these kind of people living these lives of kind of quiet desperation and downtrodden people and, um. You know, I think that's great. I think you also see Springsteen become like then a multimillionaire and hosting a podcast with Barack Obama, which is in itself kind of problematic yep. and not great either. But that's what I mean. I think there's music that can send you down that path, but ultimately you can't rely on that uh, to inform your political yes. beliefs. It can, it can introduce point. you to certain viewpoints that maybe like, again, I grew I was a sheltered suburban kid and I wasn't really ever exposed to a lot of these ideas except through music. But you can't leave it at that. I think at that point, it's if you're being on that path, it's then up to you to kind of pick up that thread and start trying to do the reading. I think that's something I've come around to a lot over the last couple of years, actually trying to read more, like uh, yeah. <laughs> same here, uh, yeah. a, a socialist <laughs> theorists or you know people like that, or, uh, or uh, you know, and really engage in that. I think at first when I was getting into like leftism, socialism, I was like, ah, it's we don't need to be doing homework. Like we all know like what these concepts. Yeah, mean. And actually, I do think it's that's something that I've come around on a lot over the last couple of years. I actually think it's really important too, and you realize it's, how. Uh, 
uh, if people more did more of this reading, we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't be having the same kind of like arguments on the left that were settled, you know, a century ago um, in these right. kind of books. It's, you know, it's, it's that uh, that old cliche on Twitter where like some communist like response to somebody like read Lenin, but you're like, actually, you know, uh, maybe 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 you should yeah <laughs> you know that yeah yeah it's, absolutely it's pretty um, good actually well i mean just yeah. on that note i mean uh, it's like you look at someone like lenin i think and again you get told all these things about the russian revolution and the ussr and communism and you also think you get this idea that this theory is so inscrutable and complex and academic but you read someone like lenin or mao and it's engaging and easy to understand and read and it's funny like you really don't yeah. realize oh, yeah. how Lenin accessible it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I actually got, I don't know if you can see it cause it's pretty dark in here, but I got my, I've got a Lenin poster back nice. there. Of him, like yeah. sweeping billionaires off the, Sick. off the planet. Yeah. So I absolutely understand what, 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 what you mean by that. And that's, that's what got me into it. Cause like, uh, you know, like capital and all those other ones, like the more academic readings, like they are hard to digest, but yeah. there's plenty of things for anybody listening that wants to hear about, communist literature from rob and i um <laughs> you know there are things from mao or Lenin or all these different things that like are very concise not written in overly academic language that still really spell it out and in some ways better because it's like more like lived experience and not just academic and like there are a hundred pages you know some of them are like a hundred pages long or less yeah. like i think state and revolution is like less than that yeah and like listen know? like you so, i was disillusioned with electoral politics and obama and bernie and the democrats and the liberal party and all that shit you read state and revolution and it's like oh i don't actually live in a democracy that that makes sense to me now it's like yeah all yeah, these parties, yeah right right there might be little differences between them but ultimately it's a one party state. it's a dictate it's a dictatorship of capital and these different parties yep. are just different wings of the capitalist class and they kind of have these little debate club arguments with one another to kind of seem like there's these big differences, but ultimately they're interested in like perpetuating this, this grotesque system and keeping the money machine uh, uh, turned on at all times and benefiting the exact same people. And it's like, Oh, okay. That's actually right. a lot more clear to me now um, when you read that. You know? <laughs> right. Yep. 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 100%. I'm, I'm glad we can, uh, can agree on that note. Uh, last quick question. Um, I asked this to everybody their first time on the podcast, uh, since it's sort of a music based podcast, although we talked about music for probably 25 minutes of this or so, but, so, uh, uh, I, I asked this question, everybody I asked Jordan this as well. So I'll, I'll ask you as well from, from, uh, the insurgents. Um, if, uh, you can make a dream team band from artists living or dead, <laughs> this is what we end on every time. Who would you, uh, you could be in the band. You could not be in the band in this instance since you're not in a current band. But like, who, who would you, uh, who would you add into that that uh, that lineup? Yeah, my the four that spring to mind. This is my dream team lineup of musicians: is uh, uh, Don Fagan, Walter Becker, Michael McDonald, and Bernard Purdy. You got to put those four guys <laughs> together sometime. You're going to see some magic. Yeah, there, there we go. Um, okay. I, I became I became extremely Dan pilled, as if you can tell over the last uh, over the yes. last couple of years. Yeah. I always had a, an appreciation for Steely Dan through my dad, who was a musician, and listened to listened to them and listened to to Don Fagan's solo album. But over the last couple of years, they've completely just taken over like everything that I that I uh, am always listening to and absolutely love I, that. I absolutely love that answer. I also love that you are officially like the quickest person with that <laughs> response on here of all time. Um, 
Rob, uh, thanks so much for coming on and and talking about your your music career and shooting the shit with me about politics. I really appreciate it. Do you want to talk Last about my new music project? I can talk to you about that if you want to finish off on some music stuff. Yeah, you have a new music project? Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely. don't really talk about this that often. Um, I'm I don't know. I, I had no idea. I make more music more just for myself for my own enjoyment, but I guess because I do this stream every day and I started. I didn't want to rely on like other people's background music and stuff. And I, I started just like, that's kind of how I got back into starting to make some more music, just making some electronic music that I can play in the background of my streams or making the theme song or doing that. And, um, over the last year or so, I started recording some actual songs like with guitar and singing and stuff. And kind of, I kind of created this. It's actually a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, I didn't mention this, but when I left the band, I, I, did record like a solo EP and I kind of created this kind of fake band called Hurstwood. Um, okay. Yeah, so I, no I didn't, I didn't really do anything with that for about 10 years. And then just this year I started writing and recording some more songs. I kind of got back into it now that I kind of got the taste of creating stuff and, and I got a new mm-hmm. computer to do streaming on, which I which made it a lot easier. I had a better sort of setup. Right. So I started just writing and recording some songs uh, over the last year, and I got—I'm uh, getting close to an album worth of songs. My goal is to have put out an actual album. I think that would be like a sort of a culmination of everything that I've kind of been working on for years and years. So um, yeah. I do. If you are I, again, I don't talk about this that much, but I do have a bunch of songs online if people want to hear them. It's uh, hurstwood.bandcamp.com. Uh, bunch of things on there. Nothing really like over. I did put out one song that's like kind of political. That's kind of influenced by that kind of Springsteen, Nebraska kind of sound, but it's overall, it's, it's, it's kind of poppy music, poppy kind of electronic guitar, indie rock kind of stuff. And it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I really enjoy writing and recording and, you know, I'm not a great producer. I like to think I'm a kind of okay, decent songwriter, but I've just been having fun doing that, writing and recording some stuff and putting That's it online. Awesome. And yeah. I listen to it in my car or when I'm walking around or whatever. Yeah. And it's it's enjoyable. I've had a really great time doing that. Well, in that vein, I always play songs at the end of this. Um, I will go to that. But you uh, you tell me we we could play one of them at the end of this. What uh, which which one of those songs would you want to play at the uh, the end of the podcast? Sure. Um, I think my favorite of the songs is called Tech Noir, um, which is a reference to Terminator. There's the bar in, in Terminator yeah. where uh, Linda mm-hmm. Hamilton's character goes to hide out. And, uh, but if you want to play the, the more Springsteen-y one that has this more political message, which I think is a better working class anthem than the one Oliver Anthony got super famous doing personally. <laughs> it's, I know it's, I'm biased because it's me, but uh, it's called work. So maybe that would make the most sense to, to tie us together and do everything we've been talking about. You know what I'll do is I'll take a clip from, from the first one you just referenced with the, the Terminator reference. I'll take a clip of that play it at the beginning and then I'll play the full song of work at the end. Sure. So yeah. that's, that's what we'll do. We'll, there we go. we'll do a double feature of, of, uh, of your songs. Cool. That's awesome. Cause I was actually going to ask you what song you wanted to play at the end. If you wanted to play a, a motion district song or whatever else you wanted to play at the end of it, but we'll play your, your songs you've put out uh, more lately. That's awesome. I need to check those out. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we'll play those at the end and then just uh, go ahead and share where, and I'll put this in the intro as well, but share where uh, people can find you and, and, and what you've got going on. Yep. I'm on, I'm on Twitter still. I'm going down with a the ship there uh, at Rob Rousseau. 
there's the Insurgents podcast, two episodes a week uh, for the Insurgents. That's insurgentspod.com. And I do a live show every day or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, for three, four hours a day on twitch.tv slash Rob Russo. That's TRRS. Uh, it starts noon Eastern, 1 a.m. Pyongyang time every single day. So if you want to <laughs> tune into what I got going over there, there's a lot of, there's a wide variety of things that we like to talk about and discuss. And I got to do a lot of interviews and cool stuff over there. So that's, that's what I got yeah, going on. I saw you had, uh, you had Ronnie Akalik and Eugene, uh, Pereira on, on, uh, not that long ago. Those yeah. are both fantastic. People I've had a lot of really so cool people come and talk to me on there. Yeah. 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 That's, that's absolutely awesome. So again, thanks Rob so much for coming on and doing this. We'll play the song work at the end of this. Um, and thanks so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. to work.